Yeah, I would say the 10 and the two-year inversion is one of them. You know, that's an interesting topic as a whole. You know, when the 10-year yield inverts and actually the two-year, I'm sorry, inverts and is pretty much closer or higher than the actual 10-year yield, that's a good indicator in terms of a recession, right? Unemployment numbers are a little tricky, right? Because, you know, they are a lagging number, right, per se. Yeah. The unemployment numbers are also another good indicator. And so those are the ones that we're paying attention specifically in this marketplace, right? I really do believe that we have already seen an inversion in the yield, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. I really do believe it's just a matter of time before we start to see, you know, inflation turn and obviously interest rates come down. But I would argue most people in the secondary market are keeping their eye on those two. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today's show, I have Leo Enzoliga. He is a correspondent lender based out of Washington, D.C. He is a wicked smart dude. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Dave LaRocque from Canada, but from a U.S. perspective. And I like bringing in a U.S. expert to just talk about what they're seeing down there. And you'll actually find there's a lot of overlap in how our two countries run in terms of mortgages and stuff. There are differences, of course, but how they affect each other. And I always say that whatever happens in the U.S. eventually is going to affect us or certainly move its way here. And so we talk about the relationship between the federal funds rate and the economy. We talk about how a flight to safety is affecting mortgage rates and then why interest rates are actually coming down. This is a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I think I found a new friend across the border there with uh, Leo talking about these things. And so hopefully you guys find it useful as I did in that conversation. Also in the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Tom Hall from Blue Mortgage about leaning into your realtor relationships. Before we jump in this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. Very easy for borrowers to use and it's super smart and makes it easy for brokers, which is why we like it for our agents. And basically, as the person is filling out the app, it's figuring out, oh, this person's self-employed. We're going to need this. They're an employee. We're going to need that. And so it determines what documents to ask for. When you get that application and you want to figure out what to do with it, you can go to Lender Spotlight, which has all the rates, guidelines, and you can search them. It's a very powerful tool. I wish it existed when I started in the mortgage industry. Mind you, when I started back in 2006, it was less complex. Like there wasn't like insured, insurable, and every other kind of thing you can think of. It was like, we can do it or we can't. Now it's so much more complex that tools like Lender Spotlight are absolutely critical. In any case, it also has the ability to smart submission notes. So when you go to hit submit on that file, it will pull the key data from the application into the submission notes. Because if you've seen how some of these lenders, what they see on their end is not what we see. You know, they got to jump around and figure out the data, make it easy for your lender, your underwriter. They're going to give you more yeses. Check them out at lendesk.com slash Finmo. Hey, Leo, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Hey, so I'm excited to chat with you. You've got quite a few topics that I think are going to be interesting to our listeners. Before we jump into those, though, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you got into the mortgage business. Yeah, so I'm from Washington, D.C., obviously in the United States. I've been in the business for almost 20 years, and probably like every one of your listeners, I feel like I tripped into this industry, right? So nobody wakes up one day and says, hey, I'm going to be a mortgage banker or a, a loan officer or an originator. One of my friends introduced me to the business and I fell in love with it and have been growing it ever since. So, you know, my team and I have done a, quite a bit of business. We focus primarily on purchase transactions in the DC metropolitan area, but our company is nationwide. And so were you doing purchase even when refis were the thing? Because it seemed like everybody was like, screw purchases, refis are, you know, and so you didn't get sucked into that or did you guys just pivot quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I learned early on in my career was that, 
you know, you want to have a very healthy model and that's obviously a 70-30 model, which is heavy on purchases, right? So the majority of our business has always been purchase heavy. So we do a lot of business with real estate professionals in the DC metropolitan area. As a matter of fact, I'm actually in our Arlington office today. You know, we teach real estate agents how to grow their business. We invest heavily on them because we do believe that that is a healthy way to actually build an overall mortgage practice. Right. Yeah. It's actually my model too, or the way that I've always done it. I mean, there's several different ways to build a mortgage business, but I might come back to that and ask some questions about it. But sure. so I want to talk about, it's been interesting. Obviously there's a lot going on with interest rates and like the Fed. And even though I'm from Canada, <laughs> this, my listeners are part American, part Canadian. And I know that whatever kind of happens in the U.S., you typically export everything, music, fashion, interest rates, real estate, like you know, all of it, right? It's funny, even sometimes Canadians get more upset about American politics than they do their own. I'm like, dude, we don't, <laughs> need to, we don't even get to vote there. And people are like, oh, this is crap. And I'm like, dude, you know. But you guys um, are so just, much nicer than we are, man. Well, I've heard that, yeah. You know, but in any case, so tell me about like, what's the relationship between the federal fund rate and the economy? So like, how do yeah. those things link? And I always say this, tell me like I'm 10, like, dumb this right down for me yeah. so that I understand it. And that if I understand it, then probably most of my listeners will too. Yeah, yeah. So the federal funds rate was actually a big topic these days. A lot of people think that, you know, it's actually interest rates, mortgage interest rates in general, but the Fed funds rate is the rate that banks charge each other overnight to meet liquidity requirements. And it's actually the number one tool that the Federal Reserve uses, you know, to fight off or kill off inflation, right? And so over the last, uh, gosh, almost a year and three months or so, one of the issues that we've been having here is that interest rates have been climbing, right? And a lot of that has to do with inflation, right? So inflation is the arch enemy of mortgage bonds. So as inflation starts to rise, mortgage bonds follow, right? I mean, mortgage interest rates, that is. And so one of the tools that the Federal Reserve uses to slow down that process is by increasing the federal funds rate, right? So as they increase the federal funds rate, that slows down the overall economy, and creates what's typically known as flight to safety, which simply means that money flows out of stocks and into bonds and treasuries. So a lot of people think that mortgage interest rates are determined based on how banks compete for business. But here, the way interest rates are actually determined is based on how this debt or these mortgage bonds are being bought and sold every single day. So if there's a buying pressure on the bonds, rates come down. If there's a selling pressure on the bonds, rates go up, right? And so yeah. the Federal Reserve, the Fed funds rate, then plays a role. But in- it can't directly affect the bond market, right? Yeah. Like it's it influences, but it's not like, hey, guys, bond rates are going up today. The bond market is noted from the stock market and that it's driven by a bunch of players that are independently making decisions that can affect the pricing, but they can affect the overnight rate, which is the rate that... So in Canada, we actually call it the overnight rate. And so it's the same, yeah. we have the exact same mechanism, essentially, because again, we probably just copied you guys like, hey, look, what are they yeah. doing down there? Let's copy that. Exactly. And so basically, they raise that overnight rate, the lending rate between the banks, and then that affects all other lending, which then, as you say, acts as a break on the economy. So can in any way the Fed influence the bond market? And if so, how do they do that? Or what's the mechanism for that? Yeah, yeah I mean, so essentially, what I said earlier, like, there's a concept called flight to safety, right? So money flows from bonds and into stocks and stocks and into bonds, right? And so if the economy is doing super well, then you typically are going to see the stock market, you know, see a rally. If the economy is not doing so well, then you're going to take that money and go into the bonds and treasuries, which are safe for investment. So as the Fed plays a role in raising the Fed funds rate or reducing it for that matter, that obviously has a correlation with, you know, stocks and bonds, right? And so what we've been seeing over the last year is that, you know, the secondary market really has been concerned about inflation as a whole. And the feds are trying to tame it by increasing the Fed funds rate, but we haven't really seen that take hold just yet. But at the moment we do, in other words, the moment the economy starts to slow down, 
we're going to see money come out of stocks and into bonds and rates should drop. Right. And so my next question is, are you seeing right now rates? I mean, this is going to be time stamped to some degree, but that's okay. Are you seeing rates continuing to go up? Are they flattening out? Are they going down? What are you noticing currently in the market? Yeah, great question. So interest rates have been going on consistently since the beginning of the year. So to give you some context, back in you know January 2020, before the pandemic, you know we were about an entire percent and three quarters lower than where we are now, right? So right now we're hovering closer to the high 6% mark, right? Pandemic hits, we saw the bond market rally, rates came down to historic lows. I'm talking low twos at one point. But yeah. at the beginning of January, I mean, we started to see interest rates very slowly, you know, start to tick up. And then right at the end of the first quarter, we saw a pretty high run and that will continue. And I mean, it has continued to go up over the last few months, I would argue until at least the end of the year. So until the end of the year, we're going to continue to see high interest rates in this area. But now I think context is important. I mean, I mean, you've been around for a while in this industry, right? 2006. Yeah. So you know exactly what's high interest rates. Are we talking double digits? I mean, that was the eighties, right? No, I mean, you're looking at kind of normalized rates over the last 30 years. Average rate was like 6.875, seven and a quarter, right? So in context, it is higher compared to what we saw during the pandemic. And obviously during that time before then, but certainly, you know, right around the average historically of, of pricing. But it's still it's sort of like rates were on sale for the, quite a while. And now we're so used to the sale prices that we're not used to regular prices. Absolutely. Right. Because like the historically, like the rates that we've seen the last few years, I mean, when I got into it, 6% prime was at six in Canada. I actually yeah. said the overnight rate was three and a quarter, three and a half. It's actually three and a quarter. I don't want somebody to call me and say, hey, you screwed up, Beckford. Like, so it was right. three and a quarter currently at the moment of this recording. It could change. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. In Canada, I've seen this has been a tool that the Bank of Canada uses, or you have the Fed, is they'll actually buy bonds. Is that something that the Fed will do as well if they want to? Obviously, they can't buy them all, but is that a way that in the past they've tried to influence the bond market? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quantitative easing has been a big part of the purchasing power of the Feds. And it's an interesting study, too, right? Because while you're increasing the federal funds rate, you still have a bunch of that technically on your books, right? So what we've seen in the first quarter of this past year is the feds have been exiting that purchasing program, right? And tightening their overall appetite for these bonds. And that's kind of another reason why we saw interest rates, you know, rally up. So yeah, it is a way that they've been able to inject liquidity into the marketplace by investing and obviously buying these bonds themselves, which is an interesting conversation overall. And obviously it's tied to opinions, you know, in the overall market, but it is a tactic that they use to inject the market with liquidity. So nobody else can see your face, but I can tell by the smirk on your face, you're like, there's something more to that. So explain, what is your thoughts? Do you think quantitative easing is something that was healthy, not healthy? Did they overdo it? Because I, I that think was time happening will tell, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, I mean, I think the net of that is, you know, time will tell, right? But what I found very interesting is that the Federal Reserve and, you know, specifically like the powers that be really did not have a good gauge in terms of what direction to go in, right? And so like the overall secondary market has been confused to some extent, right? In the first two quarters of the year, right? Like, are we tightening or are we actually like, you know, slowing the overall curve of inflation? So that's as far as I'll go there, you know, without getting political here, but needless to say, it's an interesting conversation for that reason. Right, right. There's actually an interesting quote from a guy that talks about the bond market. It was like, what does he say? He says, I used to think if I was reincarnated, I wanted to come back as a president or the Pope or a 400 baseball hitter, but now I want to come back as the bond market. You can intimidate everybody, right? I'm just yeah. like, that's like yeah. an economist joke that's like, but the bond market does have a huge influence on everything. Like you say, the interest rates, the overall market in general. And so people don't understand 
like when the banks are lending you money, they're not lending you their money. They're often getting money that they're marking up and lending to you. So if their cost of getting funds goes up, of course, your cost is going up. They're not stupid. You know, I always say banks in Canada, especially US probably too, is they're really good at not losing money. Like that is their specialty. And so they'll adjust and pivot very quickly for this stuff. But yeah, it's an interesting point because you can't really fool the secondary market, right? I mean, whatever you say in the media, whatever happens, you can't really fool like what's happening or what the impression of what you're saying actually means in the secondary market so right. whether it's comments whether it's policies etc the secondary market can really just kind of cut through that noise right right sense. and yeah that's why a lot of the smart money or smart people are looking at those outside indicators right. and not even they kind of listen to the thing but then they look at the indicators what is the yeah. and so what is the things that they watch for is it like the 10-year yield or is there key numbers if you had to look at a dashboard of all these different there's lots of them what are the one or two that you think that are the most important to pay attention to yeah, I would say the 10 and the two-year inversion is one of them. You know, that's an interesting topic as a whole. You know, when the 10-year yield inverts and actually the two-year, I'm sorry, inverts and is pretty much close or higher than the actual 10-year yield, that's a good indicator in terms of a recession, right? Unemployment numbers are a little tricky, right? Because, you know, they are a lagging number, right, per se. Yeah. The unemployment numbers are also another good indicator. And so those are the ones that we're paying attention specifically in this marketplace, right? I really do believe that we have already seen an inversion in yield, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. I really believe it's just a matter of time before we start to see you know, inflation turn and obviously interest rates come down. But I would argue most people in the secondary market are keeping their eye on those two. Those so, okay, tell me like I'm dumb. So when you say yeah. inverts, does that mean that two-year money is more expensive than 10-year money? Is that what you're saying? Or money, are you saying something different? Two-year money is actually yielding a higher return the oh, not more expensive. Okay, sorry, I said it backwards. Not more expensive, but it's actually more profitable to put your money in two-year term than a 10-year right. term. Yeah, so think about that, right? So like, in theory, it should be the 10-year term that actually will give you the higher rate of return. Why? Because it's there longer, right? Right. And when you start to actually see the inversion, that's a good indicator in terms of where the market is headed. And I would argue, we saw the first inversion, I believe, in March. And we saw it again here recently. So as the economy starts to slow down, and some people would argue that it has already started, we're going to start to obviously that inversion and I see a little bit more of a gap within that inversion. And that's essentially where we're going to start to see interest rates come down. So that's usually an indication of a pending recession, sort of like if there was a, you know, flashing dash, like that was like, hey, recession's coming, it would be watching that inversion of the 10 and the two year. It's very yeah. interesting, but it makes sense. So let's imagine if I have a huge pension fund, I'm sitting on a billion dollars, like, Mwahaha. I'm not putting money in a 10 year. I have no idea what's going to happen, but two years, okay, that's a bit more time I can watch. And so you can see how money would flow to that two-year term, a two-year bond, and then that would affect the yield, right? Was that correct or am I incorrect on that? You that's can, correct. You can that's t- correct. If I'm wrong, you tell me because I'm like, I don't mind that's, being wrong. Just, that's correct. Just, that's, yeah. that's exactly yeah. right. And I mean, it's common sense, right? I mean, you told me, hey, talk to me like I'm 10, right? Like if you're going to invest money, I want my money to get the highest yield of return. Well, from a risk standpoint, right? Well, the longer it sits there, the better, right? But when yeah. the two-year treasury note is actually yielding a much higher rate of return to the tenure. That's obviously- the smart, the smart people are saying, I ain't putting my money in tenure because I know this is temporary. I'm going to put it in two years because I want that money to use again. I want to put it somewhere else and I'm not going to commit it out for 10 years at a time. When there's less money, I don't understand. So in Canada, one of the unique differences is we don't have like 25-year mortgages. We have 25-year amortizations, but the mortgage term is five years and the rate is set. And then this is back to Canadian banks being smart. They're like, no, 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 dude, I'm not going to guarantee your rate for 25 years. I have no idea. what. So they make you readjust your rate typically every five years. Like, So in the US, when they do 25-year mortgage, how do they guarantee? So somebody who got a 25-year mortgage, that's like 2%. How do they fund that given that you know their pricing has probably gone up for the next, you know, for how long? So where does that money come from? I'm curious. 
let me make sure I understand your question. So you, are you saying, hey, if we are holding on to this loan for 30 years, let's call yeah. it at a rate of 6% and rates come down to, let's call it 4%, you know, two years later, what happens? Is that what you're asking? No, no. So, no, okay. So what I'm asking is the opposite. So let's say somebody who's in a 3% 30-year mortgage, right? So, and now the bank has committed to that customer. You will only charge you 3%, but where do they get 30-year money? I guess, well, like, how do you get 30-year money? Because in Canada, when there's a five-year fixed rate, there's a five-year bond and they go, we, they match together, we make our spread. And then five years from now, it could be up, it could be down, but the bank's like, we're always going to make our spread. How do you guarantee a spread when it's a 30-year window that the bank is guaranteeing the rate for and their pricing can be fluctuating? That's the part I'm curious about. That's good. Let me take a stab at it. So a few things here that just come to mind. Number one, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, you're going to restructure this debt at least one time in the first five to eight years of owning this property. So the chances of you staying in that particular note, very small, right? So typically, right, that's kind of anticipated within every single one of the mortgages. Second, not sure how this is in Canada. Which I agree with that because either one, they either refi, they sell, people stay in the same home for an average of seven years. So then the loan gets wiped out. So there's very few people that probably go all the way to the end of the 30 years and be like, I'm not making change in nothing. Like it's just unlikely. Yeah, and, and according to the National Association of Realtors, the stats might be a little bit off, but like nine to 14 years is how long people usually stay in a house, right? So right, there you go. Yeah, you have like two windows, five to eight, nine to 14, right? And so the chances of them restructuring that are very, very high. Now, the way it works here in terms of the overall banking system, right? So most people actually, most consumers think that, you know, we're lending them the money. No, we're actually funding the loan, right? And we're taking that loan and we're actually giving it to a servicer, right? Or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are rating it, literally taking that loan, pulling it, putting a bunch of paper together in this box, and then selling that box into the open market. Right. What happens with that money? Well, that money goes into obviously part of our portfolio, right? And so now if I have a rate of 3% and rates are higher now, clearly that particular bond is losing money for that portfolio, right? But it's part of the cycle itself because I really right. do believe they're going to obviously restructure that at some point in the first five to eight years, nine to 14. Right. Okay. So basically they've done the math. It's kind of like reverse mortgage companies know that, Hey, we can yeah. give you this money, but we know that it's very unlikely we're going to lose given, you know, your lifespan and appreciation on real estate over X period of time. There's yeah. a small gamble there, but it's like, they've done the math enough times to know that it's like Vegas, they win most of the time. And Correct. sometimes they lose. They're like, doesn't matter. We, we win so much that it covers our losses. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. So then what happens with housing? How does this interest rates affect supply? Like housing, Prices and supply. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, a few things there. So let's talk about just current supply, current housing uh, right now. And then let's talk about the recession, what happens after recession when the economy slows down. So interesting stat, back in the 1980s, there was a huge boom of births in this particular country, right? So a lot of people were born in the 1980s, okay? And those people actually held off longer to invest in real estate. In other words, it's taken them longer to start the buying process, right? So the buying process began for the majority of the millennials in late 2019. Okay, so why is that? Well, a lot of them saw their parents struggle during the Great Recession, right? So a lot of them saw their mm -hmm. parents home and they vowed that they would not put themselves in that position, right? So right. we have a lot of people that were born, a lot of people entering the marketplace for the very first time in 2019. So we were seeing a shortage of inventory. Why? Because there's 14 million more households being formed, right? And 3 million fewer homes available for them to purchase, right? Right. So right even before the recession that happens, recession hits, less people are selling their homes, double appreciation for two years, right? Interest rates are extremely low. 
in the low twos, less inventory and more competition, right? Now that's obviously slowed down as interest rates started to climb in early January of 2020. We started to see all of those buyers kind of get priced out of the market, right? But that said, we have seen still some competition in specific pockets, high density areas for that reason, because there's still buyers out there that are thinking about investing in real estate. There's still that millennial crowd, the people that were born in the 80s that are looking to enter the marketplace. So what does that mean moving forward? Well, specifically in this time frame, we really do believe that we're going to see the spring market around the first two quarters of the year. We're going to see an influx or an injection of those buyers that were priced out of the market. As interest rates come down, they're going to come back into the fold. And, we're gonna and some of the prices have come down too. So you got this like two, you got prices coming in one direction that because of what's been happening. So it's going to make it more. Yeah, correct, correct. Correct. And I would say more so like correction, right? So like double digit appreciations, not the norm, right? Average appreciation rate, 4.65%, you know, historically, right? 63 yeah. years, right? And so you're definitely are coming down to those historical numbers. But when you have low interest rates in the early 2020s, they get priced out, all of those people are going to re-enter the moment the market turns, right? So some would argue the first quarter of next year, second quarter of next year, we're going to start to see that. What does that do to housing? Well, uh, some estimates show that we're going to see appreciation, right? So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, some of the agencies, National Association of Realtors are averaging about 7% appreciation going into next year, okay? So that's just uh, today. Now, what does a recession mean for rural housing? Well, historically speaking, believe it or not, during a recession, Interest rates obviously drop, right? Flight to safety, yeah. we already talked about that. Yeah. And appreciations actually go up, right? I did an entire master call on this and I put it on YouTube. So if anyone wants to actually go- I'll put there, a link in the chat or in the chat. <laughs> I'll put a link in the recording, not in the chat, sorry. Keep yeah, on. yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I talk about there is outside of 2008, right? Because that was an anomaly, right? Historically speaking, since the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, home appreciations have increased after a recession. In other words, pricing goes up. Why is that? Well, demand, right? And obviously lower rates, right? So that's the reason. And so we're going to continue to see that, I would argue, at least, you know, this go around for the next three years. And I guess the last point there in terms of housing and appreciation is the question I always get is, well, how is this different from 2008, right? Like, you know, isn't this the same exact thing? Are we going to see a crash again? The answer is, I don't think so. And the reason why that is, is lending practices have really tightened over the years. And home appreciation. Oh, yeah, it's totally different. I could get people to fog a mirror and I'd be like, congratulations, Correct. you qualify for this mortgage. Correct. That is not the situation, or even though it's been a crazy market, that has not been the situation over the last couple of years. It's been significantly more due diligence. And we have qualifying rates that are significantly higher than the rate they get on their contract. And so all these things, the underwriting is completely different. But yeah, absolutely. And also the other pieces, equity positions, right? Like the amount of value that people have in their homes. I mean, before in the past, when you literally had a pulse and had a mortgage, you didn't necessarily have a skin in the game, right? So not a lot of people yeah. had equity, but when you have 200,000, 50,000, 100,000 in the actual property, it's going to be harder for you to walk away from that, right? And so those are a couple of indicators, but appreciation will continue because of what we discussed earlier, rates coming down and obviously historically, you know, appreciation going up. But the biggest one is household formations. There are more households now than ever before and less homes available, less inventory available for them to buy. Yeah, I totally agree. So a couple of things that's unique. So Canada, our problem with supply is, is that we have a lot of immigration. So we love bringing in new people all the time, which is awesome, but we bring in more people than we can possibly house. And we have shortage of skilled labor, so we can't build them fast enough. We have slow processes for getting development off the ground and there's you know costs. So then we couldn't even keep up with 
the demand of that, let alone what we've seen, a migration of people moving out of centers into smaller areas because they can work from home now. That's not going to be everybody, but I think there's going to be a segment of the workforce that will permanently or nearly permanently work from home. And they're like, why am I in downtown Toronto when I could work out in the right. sticks and put a little office in my house and life is good? So there's that. You have separation creating double families. So now you have two units for people that was one. And so all these things affect supply. And then the other part, I don't know if it's in the US, but in Canada, we have rental markets crazy. Like you just can't find anything to rent long-term. Airbnb, I believe is affecting that to some degree because people are like, I don't want a long-term tenant when I can have short-term tenants that I turn over more flexibility. And in, at least in Canada, the rental rules are so slanted towards the tenant. It's literally like if they stop paying, you like takes forever to get them out. And it's painful versus the short-term tenant, they pay more. And it's much so all these things are kind of converging to create this situation where we have supply problems. And so I agree with you. I don't think real estate is going to drop off a cliff by any means. You know, there's going to be some dips in certain markets, but there's still going to be. And the smart money, the investors will be the first people back. They'll be like, oh, dang, look out. And then everybody else will fall. Right now, people are just kind of sitting on the sidelines. But I think the investors are sitting there just waiting for the right time and they're going to jump in. Yeah, I think, I mean, you said a lot. I mean, I, and I think what it boils down to is this. I was talking to a friend of mine. He does a lot of business in this area. He's a real estate professional. And I think at the crux of this entire issue, right, is advice and education, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we're educating our clients enough and saying, hey, you know, you buy a house when you're ready to buy a house, right? Whether the market's high, whether the market's low, you're going to invest in real estate when you're ready. Well, what are some indicators of that? A, rents, right? Like, heck, yeah. my gosh, I'm spending so much money on rent be the concept of space which you touched on like interesting article that i read a few months ago regarding you know uh, remote working like how that's actually changed like how we look at housing right there's states in the united states that are giving tax incentives for people to move to middle of america right you know where in the past you really didn't see that right well why is that yeah, well, yeah. they can work remote they can literally be on their computer and work remote and not necessarily be tied to their desk in the city. So there's a lot of pieces there, but I think it boils down to education. And I think educating clients and, and consumers are important. Right. And this is why having these conversations, you understanding, and even if you're a Canadian mortgage broker or American, understanding the nuances of what's going on and you can speak intelligently to it, makes your clients trust you. They're just like, look, you tell me what to do, man. Leo, you're my guy. You know, you seem, you know more about it than me. And then you can guide them versus just I don't believe that our job is to be like a, hey, do you want fries with that order taker, right? Hey, what's, you know, right. which mortgage do you want up on the, uh, like, oh, I want this one. Like, hold on, yeah. why do you want that one? You start asking them questions, they don't know why, they don't have a clue. And so you need to uh, do that with them. Okay, so we just kind of touched on this, the future of interest rates, you're kind of expecting the recession as historically happens, we're going to see, you know, a decrease in, they're going to have to lower rates to stimulate the economy. It's like this constant cycle, right? Like, oh, too much, too little, too much. And uh yeah, what's going to happen is they're going to continue to increase the Fed funds rate. That's going to slow down the economy. And then at some point, I would argue in the first quarter of next year, we're going to start to see interest rates dip. Now, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I have a friend that does. His name is Barry Habib, which is amazing. But uh, he is he is pretty smart. I've like, I don't know how he does it, but I've heard his accuracy is uncanny. He's incredible. He is incredible. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I really do think that we need to obviously educate our consumers with is like, look, yes, you invest in real estate when you're ready to invest. Yes, I really do believe that there's a lot of really good indicators that rates are going to come back down. And yes, I really do believe that the prices are going to be slightly higher going into next year. If I'm wrong in a couple of those, okay, so be it, right? Like, but here's the deal. At the end of the day, investing in real estate is the greatest hedge against inflation. You either believe in that or you don't, right? 
at the end of the day, investing in real estate is the greatest way to generate generational wealth. Like, right. You believe that or you don't. And this is a long-term play, right? If you say to me, Hey, I'm going to be here for a year and I'm going to flip this house and make a ton of money because I see the guys on TV doing, I would say, Hey, keep renting. Um, yeah. yet. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to get your teeth kicked in very right. likely. You don't, right. you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So let me ask you this. So you talked about that you work with a lot of realtors. You guys have good relationships. So yeah. I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what kind of conversations are you having with realtors right now to talk them off a ledge? Because they just went from like too much business to at least in our market to be a little slower. And so how are you coaching them? I mean, it's probably some of this stuff, but what specifically, if I was a realtor, what would you be saying to me? Yeah, I think advice is the biggest piece, right? So we need to be advisors and not salespeople, right? And so one of the things that we were talking about on a regular basis with them is, hey, we're not here to sell anyone into a home. We need to advise them and show them the actual data, right? Number two, there's this, this is a great opportunity for you to gain more market share. Guess what? A lot of people are afraid and they're leaving the industry similar to in years past, right? So when the Great Recession happened or any slowdown in the overall economy, it's time to double down on our efforts to reach out and be vocal, not about, you know, the hypotheticals, not about like what we hope and, you know, them to do, right? I see a lot of agents online just like, you know, selling themselves, you know, trying to convince buyers of what to do instead of just giving advice. So we're, yeah. we're talking a lot about that. And then number three, I think it's just aligning yourself with professionals that, you know, kind of fall in line within that realm, right? Like one of the things that my team and I have been very, very big on over the last, you know, couple of years, specifically this year is like being on the offense on social, being on the offense in terms of creating content online, you know, giving people the facts and letting them take the facts, fact check it and actually go and make an educated decision for themselves. Right. And so we're providing them with, you know, like master calls, like the one I talked to you about earlier, we're providing them with like statistics, we're providing them with content for them to review. And then obviously, yeah. share with the client. so those are some really good things that we're having conversations on right now with. Right. That's awesome. And where can people follow you on social media? So if you touch on that, if it's something you do that, I, I always say cheat on the test, find smart people, follow what they do, and then do your own version of it. Like don't copy, but like be inspired. So where can people find you what you're doing online? Yeah. Yeah. At Leo on Soliaga group is the I'll put it in the show notes. Yep. And, and then Soliago, is it the usual spelling? A and yeah, A and I, I don't know. I wouldn't notice. I mess with you. I don't know. I would not spell. I can see it. I, think yeah, yeah, I would not spell yeah. it otherwise. A N D O L E A G A. It's on Soliaga Group. So Leo on Soliaga. Okay. One thing you made me think of there is that I feel a little bit like this is going to be the year of the purge. You know, where there's two types of people. There's the people who are going to quit and the people who are going to commit. And there's going to be another boom. There's going to be pent up demand. There's people sitting there waiting. And so we're going to go through this period of like, and then it's going to go. And if you're the person who stuck around, you stayed in it, you kept reaching out to people, creating your social content, you're going to make a fortune. And then there's other people who are like, dude, it was so easy. I don't want to work hard anymore. I just don't want to do that much work. Like it was literally business was falling in their lap. And so yeah. I feel like there's so much opportunity. Well, you think- got to play that long game. You can't think just the next three months, right? Bingo. Bingo. And I think uh, here's something interesting I read recently or heard recently. So the last time we saw inflation, at least even remotely close to where we are now is before our lifetime. So I'm 39, I'm going to be 40 next year. Your average age has to be 55 for you to understand what this market was back in the day, right? And so we don't necessarily have context. A lot of people don't have context of this, right? The age 55 and older do, right? And so right. I think it's important. I'm almost there, dude. I'm 47. So I'm like, but I didn't know. In my 20s, I pay no attention to stuff. But yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I was just saying, so you could be 55 basically for you to even have an understanding of yes. what's happening right now and how this whole thing plays out. So 
Yeah. And people were still selling real estate. People were still were investing in real estate. People were still needing a home to live, right? And so the sky is not falling, right? And I think you're right. There will be a purge here. And there's also going to be a lot of commitment. People that are going to commit and they're going to change their entire business and watch. And 10 years from now, they're going to look back and go, that was the go, best. Man, that was thing. the best year ever. Thank Correct. goodness. It's like, exactly. It's exactly what they're going to say. But this has been a lot of fun, Leo. So where can people find you? We talked about the socials. Where can they find you? You got a company that you said that you lend all across the U.S., I got a couple last questions for you. One, where can they find you? And two, do you guys hire people? Are you looking for people? I'm just like, so that people can, you know, if they've heard you and say, this, he sounds like a smart dude. I'd like to work with them. Or is yeah. that not something yeah. you do? I don't even know. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. The, the best way is just connect with me on social, right? Or just shoot me an email, leo at dkmortgage.com. And yes, of course, we're constantly looking for talent, right? People that are hungry, but also people that are committed to sharpening their sword and becoming the best advisor for their clients. Right. Yeah. And not an order taker. Hey, do you want fries with that mortgage? Don't do that. Right. That's terrible. Exactly. Terrible advice. Okay. Leo, thanks for chatting with me, brother. You know, I'll definitely have you on again. We'll see how this happens. Let some time pass. And you're kind of like my brother from across the border who's like, hey, what's because whatever's going on there is coming here in some way, right? Like Agreed. whatever that looks like. And so we'll definitely chat again about, uh, I think this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it, man. All right. Hopefully you picked up a couple of nuggets and just got a better understanding of how the U.S. mortgages work and how they relate to the Canadian mortgage rates. And I'm going to now chat with Tom Hall from Blue Mortgage about leaning into your realtor partnerships to get more business. Hey, Tom. Welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. So, hey, today we're going to talk about leaning into your realtor relationships and we're going to look at it through the lens of having data, which you have given some of the things that, you know, what you guys do. And I think it's going to be interesting for some of the insights that you have on this and what you're seeing some of your top mortgage brokers doing. So why don't we jump into it? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, kind of where this is coming from is exactly pinpointed that working with some people and saying, hey, do you know what, if I compare now to let's call it six months ago, I have a little bit more time on my hands. What does that mean? And then what we see a lot of these top teams doing is reaching out to those realtors and really just kind of building those relationships. And I'll talk about a couple of ways they're doing that. But I think before you even get into that, before you start reaching out and doing that sort of thing, because I think if you think about 2021 and you know the early part of 2022 is just crazy. And so there's probably a ton of different realtors and relationships that you had but now in this point, you know, you want to be smart about who you're reaching out to and how. And as you kind of alluded to it, what we've been encouraging people to do is to really kind of look at the data, right? So look back and see what are the right places to attack in terms of, you know, building these types of relationships. Right. So what kind of things in the data would they be looking for? So I agree with you. I think that there's not all referral partners are created equal, not all realtors, no offense to Realtors listening, if you listen to this show, if you are, I don't know why, but in any case, uh, <laughs> so what kind of analysis would you think would you be looking for? I mean, I have some ideas on what I think, but what do you think and what do you see? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, ultimately it does depend a little bit on your business and how you think about it. But, you know, where a lot of people start is really simply taking a look at all the realtors maybe you work with kind of over that period, 21, 2022, and there was, you know, maybe a ton of them. But taking a quick look back and just saying, okay, how about my fundings? You know, what are the deals that I worked on with which realtors? And when I kind of add it all up and I put it all in one big table, you know, who's in row number one? Who's in row number two? Who's that person? Who's that realtor that really helped me fund the most volume during that time period, right? So I think that's obviously a really great place to start. And that's what I see a lot of people doing. Right. Yeah. Because as you know, the numbers, it depends on what you focus on. Like we've talked about this before we turn on is that 
you could be like, oh, this person sent me lots of leads. But when you dive into it, you're like, man, those leads suck. It took like, you know, <laughs> yeah. one in 20 of them closed. They were really difficult. And so there's not just the data. It's looking at it and deciding what's important. If it's just leads, well, is that the most important thing or is it actually funding yeah. or closings? I would say it's closings is more, you know, I want to look at who's actually productive in terms of sending me referrals. Right. And then not everybody deserves your time equally. The other piece is, which is, sounds kind of harsh, but it's like, if some people are better partners than others, then those people should be getting more of your energy and time than somebody who's just, you know, I've talked to a realtor who's running ads and they'll give you a list of 300 names and these people don't know who you are. They don't know who the realtor is. And they're like, here's 300 leads. It's like, well, are these really leads? Are these just like uh, people that random emails or something yeah. that they didn't yeah. even know what they're doing? And that's a different situation yeah. than, than actually like, you know, proper referrals. Proper referrals. Yeah. And honestly, if you're listening to this and you say, hey, that list of 300 names doesn't sound so bad. And maybe it's not right. It kind of depends on your business and your goals. Maybe you just want to build up your database and build a real solid thing. Or maybe kind of the bottom line is the priority right now. So maybe you're focused on funding. But so it's exactly like you said, Scott, it's just kind of defining Hey, what's important to me, what's important to my business at this time. And even if you combine those two things, you know, leads to funding, that's your ratio. And that's a really good metric, kind of like you said, of how much time this person's sucking up to, you know, generate a dollar revenue at the end. And so, you know, looking across each of those different metrics, deciding first of all, what's important to you, and then going back into your data to say, okay, who is in the top row? So that's right. kind of where I recommend people to start. And then they say, okay, I've done that. So what now, right? What next? What do I do next? Yeah. Okay, what is yeah, the next yeah. step? Well, I think I kind of, after that, I split into two things. I say, okay, well, there's, you know, the deals you're not working on or, you know, more prospecting side of things then okay, there's your live deals that you're actually actively working on. And so starting on the prospecting side of things, it's not unlike what we've said in other areas kind of in this environment no one's really sure. And I don't even think realtors are excluded. You know, I think there's a lot of ambiguity. People aren't quite sure what it means for them, for their clients, that sort of thing. So, you know, I always recommend just kind of being honest, using education and always taking it from the lens of, Hey, what does this mean for me? So as a realtor saying, Hey, you know what? I've pre-approved them for these couple clients. Now their pre-approval might've changed. That's what matters to the realtor. So taking that lens as you're going out and, trying to prospect with these people you've identified as top realtors right right so i totally agree education is i've always believed in education-based marketing that's been my yeah. sort of go-to method and you're right with the current rate increases it's affected pre-approvals and i always say like you want to break it down to what is that per month per hundred thousand you know i think it's like 36 bucks yeah. or something is what so right. you got to break it into like what does that mean because it's like yeah they went up like I did the math on quite a bit of variable rate mortgage right now, more than I've ever had in my life. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, oh, that went up quite a bit. Like yeah. I noticed that, but like, anyway, so I think that's helpful for people. And then you're right. Like just having real conversations with your clients, if this is going to affect, you know, their buying yeah. options, just letting them know and, um, yeah, and letting your realtors know. It's better to do it now, right? Versus, okay, they actually put an offer in and then they say, well, what the heck you pre-approved me. And they don't realize that, you know, it wasn't, anything other than just rates changing and the environment changing that changed that. So being proactive with that can save you also some pain down the line. Absolutely. All right. Okay. And then, what other things you notice? And then, yeah, I guess just, you know, that was kind of more the prospecting, the, you know, the irons you have in the fire. And then, you know, it was, it relates to maybe when you got a live deal on the go, 
you know, I say this at any time, but especially now as you are trying to build up those relationships, stick to the three P's, I say. So being punctual. So it's kind of hitting the deadlines that you need to. That's kind of baseline. Being proactive, right? I mean, I think it looks really great when you're able to update people along every step of the way instead of just, you know, waiting for that phone call, that maybe angry phone call. Being proactive really sets you apart. And then, of course, throughout the whole thing, being professional. So punctual, proactive, and professional, and kind of stick to those three. And you know, just by doing that, it really kind of allows you to differentiate versus, you know, other people that these realtors might be dealing with. And I think if you could add a fourth P, Tom, it would be pretty. Okay. I think you're what I would say is man pretty. So they can't see you. But... <laughs> <laughs> if you can be yeah, pretty too, right. yeah. it's just gonna be it's just easier, man. It's just the, honestly, it's gonna be easier. There you go. I just yeah. <laughs> Proactive, functional, yeah, professional, it. and pretty. If you and pretty, yeah, yeah. Um, Pull off the four P, awesome, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know what I think about whenever you're looking at doing any of this kind of analysis, or remember the eighty twenty rule we were talking about this before. It's like. Totally. It's always 20% yeah. that move the needle. And then if you want to do the 80-20 again to that group, you're going to be like, oh, wait a second. That group is even, you know, if you looked at a, a thousand mortgage brokers and you did 80-20 to them three or four times, you're going to get down to like, it's funny how we seem to slot ourselves into this. and It just seems to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for sure that, you know, look at the data with your clients, educate, especially with these changes and to get in front of it. And then finally, like you're right, proactive, punctual, professional in. Hey, and you can, if you can, maybe, pretty, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm pretty. It's why I do radio, right? Like you don't even see my video. So my, yeah. and my, my Facebook profile picture is like, I don't know, 10 years old. I make fun of realtors. I used to make fun of realtors, but now I'm the same. I'm like, it's so I'm cool. guilty of that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I think we all are. Right? They're like, yeah. Oh wow. The years have been kind, Scott. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So what, uh, let's yeah. wrap this up. What would you say for somebody who's thinking about leaning into realtor relationships? Yeah, I think uh, if you can, as best you can, you know, Use the data as you can, trying to find that 80-20, you know, really on those 20% of realtors that are going to maybe generate an 80% of whatever is important to you, leads, funded volume, whatever that might be, you know, really kind of lean into that. Once you have that list, then it's just about kind of, you know, as it relates to getting more irons in the fire, being proactive of education, and then when you do have those live deals, the three or four P's, I'll throw in the fourth P for you, Scott, of being, you, being proactive. Yeah, you got it. And professional, punctual, and of course, pretty. So, you know, doing that, using the data to get you where you need to be for these realtor relationships. Right. It's awesome, Tom, as always. And so if you're listening to this, you want to check out Tom's company, Blue Mortgage, Blue with no E. We use it to manage literally hundreds and hundreds of files for our underwriting team. And it's great. I'm in there every day, like literally every day I go in and I run my report. I'm like, what's closing this month, next month. I look at like, <laughs> Love it. it's, I'm, I'm obsessive yeah. about it. I mean, I don't use it. I'm not the person who's actually, you know, um, working in it. The underwriting team is, but I like being able to have this level of visibility where it's really simple from us to manage the whole thing just from one tool. So you guys have done a good job on this thing. I would say it's pretty. Tom, I it's pretty even. I hit the yeah. fourth P. Wow. Okay. You hit the fourth yeah. P in this thing. This yeah. is pretty. Yeah. So yeah, there you uh, go. all right. Check out bluemortgage.ca. <laughs> Thanks guys. Thanks Tom for chatting with me. Thanks Scott. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Hopefully you picked up a couple ideas from my conversation with Leo and Tom. Thanks for being a listener. I really appreciate it. If you want to go check something super cool, go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account that allows you to keyword search all of our past episodes, like literally every episode, right to the minute, the second that something's mentioned. It's a fantastic research tool. It'll help you get better in your business. It's completely free. Go check it out. And uh, thanks again for being a listener. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.